The title of this morning's message is Praying Amiss? Question <laughs> mark. This morning I want to continue to talk to you about prayer from the book of James. The last time I ministered, we looked at praying the prayer of faith and praying in the name of the Lord from chapter 5. What I hope you came away with from that message is that our new identity in Christ is everything when it comes to prayer and faith. We are to pray as if we are Christ himself. That's why we use his name. He has made us his power of attorney agents. We are his legal representatives on the earth with the exact same power and authority as Jesus himself because Jesus himself lives within us all the time. And if we pray according to his wishes and his promises and his will, we can expect to see the same kind of results that Jesus had. Jesus knew that he could do nothing of himself. We know that all too well. We can do nothing of ourselves, <laughs> but that his Father was the true source of life and all power. But what happens if we pray in a way that's not in accordance with God's wishes and promises and will? What happens then? <laughs> well, James actually covers this problem in chapter 4, and he calls it praying amiss. We can see this in verse 3 of chapter 4. I have it for you in the King James. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Now, to begin with, we always have to remember who James wrote this letter to. <laughs> he wrote it to the Jews, saved Jews and unsaved Jews, mostly unsaved Jews, <laughs> but both of them were his audience. Now, I say this because James comes across a bit harsh in chapter 4. And when we see this, we need to remember that this letter is not written to us, but for us. And even though this letter was written to Jewish people who were alive at that time in history, we can still learn from what James has to say, because even though we're not Jews, we are believers. We just need to recognize that not everything he says pertains to us. <laughs> also, we need to remember that James uses the if the shoe fits approach. In other words, if the shoe fits, take heed. If it doesn't pertain to you, let it pass by. The context for chapter 4 actually begins in chapter 3. So we're going to begin there. I'll start in verse 9. I have it for you in the Passion Translation. Here, James is talking about the source of our word. We use our tongue to praise God our Father and then turn around and curse a person who was made in his very image. Out of the same mouth, we pour out words of praise one minute and curses the next. My brothers and sisters, this should never be. Would you look for olives hanging on a fig tree or go to pick figs from a grapevine? Is it possible that fresh and bitter water can flow out of the same spring? Neither can a bitter spring produce fresh water. James just told us that blessing and cursing can come from the same mouth, the same spigot, but not from the same source. In other words, we have two sources we can pull from when using our words. The mind of the flesh, which is our old, ugly flesh head, or the mind of the spirit, which is the very mind of Christ. James points his readers to their true identity. Are you a bitter, unregenerated spring, or are you a born-again freshwater spring? Born-again sons of God are freshwater springs, but we are still capable of pulling junk out of our old, ugly flesh head. Now remember, we are not flesh heads. <laughs> we have a flesh head. It's an affliction. <laughs> but a flesh head is not who we are. We do not have an evil twin lurking about on the inside of us. Our old sinful man was completely crucified and done away with. But the contents of our brain were not crucified. So we still have unregenerated thinking and believing that needs to be updated to match our true identity as sons of God and bondservants of the Lord Jesus. After this, James continues to speak to his reader regarding the sources, 
that we can pull from. But now it's in regards to wisdom, continuing in verse 13 in the Passion. If you consider yourself to be wise and one who understands the ways of God, advertise it with a beautiful, fruitful life guided by wisdom's gentleness. Never brag or boast about what you've done, and you'll prove that you are truly wise. That's because a wise man knows that without Jesus, he can do nothing. <laughs> Verse 14. But if there is bitter jealousy and competition hiding in your heart, then don't deny it and try to compensate for it by boasting or being phony. That has nothing to do with God's heavenly wisdom, but can best be described as the wisdom of this world, both selfish and devilish. Wisdom, in short, can best be understood as knowing what the best thing to do is in any given situation. And of course, only God knows that. So both our wisdom and our knowledge must come from God and his word. The wisdom of this world is both selfish, flesh-headed, and devilish, and cannot bring forth the life and goodness of God into our lives. Continuing with verse 16. So, Wherever jealousy and selfishness are uncovered, you will also find many troubles and every kind of meanness. But the wisdom from above is always pure, filled with peace, considerate, and teachable. It is filled with love and never displays prejudice or hypocrisy in any form. And it always bears the beautiful harvest of righteousness. In other words, our righteousness shows up on the outside. <laughs> Good seeds of wisdom's fruit will be planted with peaceful acts by those who cherish making peace. So again, we have two sources we can pull from. We can pull from the wisdom of God that comes by the Holy Spirit and bears God's character and power and peace. Or we can pull from the wisdom of our ugly old flesh head which is, according to James, self-centered, jealous of others, mean, worldly, and sometimes, yes, even devilish. <laughs> God's wisdom produces good fruit and peace. The flesh head's wisdom produces bad fruit and war. Again, flesh head is just our natural brain functioning and accessing all the misinformation and lies that we have stored in our memory bank. Our ugly old flesh head always believes the natural realm more than the spiritual realm, which is a problem when you're praying. <laughs> That's usually what we actually fight with. We're fighting with our flesh head, trying to convince it to believe what we already know is true in our spirit. As God's sons and bondservants, it is God's responsibility to take care of us and to supply us with whatever we need. And wisdom is always one of the primary things we always need. This understanding comes from understanding who we really are. We're not beggars. We're sons and we're bondservants. And we have a good, good father. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God goes around waving magic wands over our life to make stuff appear out of nowhere. <laughs> sometimes especially young christians they kind of think in the, those kinds of terms god will just wave his hand over the spot and that'll be the end of it doesn't always work that way <laughs> most of the time we have to cooperate with him in faith it's always a walk with him yes god will bless us in unexpected ways but it's always going to be based on our continuous loving and trusting relationship with him everything comes out of our relationship with him. When we understand that God has already granted us everything we need for life and godliness through his precious promises, then we don't have to try to supply all of our needs all by ourselves or with our own wisdom. <laughs> God is always our true source, and he has a myriad of ways to get what we need to us. But we always need to think in terms of cooperating with God by believing his word and then acting on his word. Answers to prayer are based on our cooperating with God by being in faith regarding our request. So that means we need to know if what we're asking for is actually, in fact, God's will. So we have to ask God what he thinks about our request <laughs> because we can't actually be in faith if we don't know for sure what God's will for us actually is. For example, many believers struggle with knowing that God wants them well. 
They've been erroneously taught that God might be affecting them with sickness in order to teach them something or to punish them for something they've done wrong. But scripture is very clear about how God sees sickness. We can see this in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, where it says this. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So we can see here that those who are sick are oppressed by the devil, not by God. <laughs> it's amazing how much of the church gets that wrong. <laughs> Jesus did not come to undo the works of the Father, but the works of the devil. And sickness was and still is one of Satan's works. It's part of the curse. And Satan is not God's errand boy. Satan doesn't go around doing God's bidding. <laughs> He's still God's adversary. Even though he's a defeated adversary, he's still an adversary. And he's still in the deceiving business, lying to anyone who will listen. The Apostle John tells us that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and he does it in the middle of explaining our behavior comes from our true source. Beginning with verse 7. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he, Jesus, is righteous. He's actually talking about the believer's true source of behavior. A righteous man will do righteously. Maybe not 100% of the time, <laughs> but a righteous man will do righteously because that's his true nature. His nature is the very righteousness of God. The word says we actually become slaves of righteousness. In other words, if our flesh head is talking to us about doing something we know we shouldn't, our righteousness is going to be pulling us in the opposite direction. <laughs> we can't help it. <laughs> we have to be righteous in our behavior because we are righteous in our spirit. Verse 8. He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. In other words, sinners sin because their source, their true nature, is devilish. <laughs> For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil are absolutely everything that's under the curse. But it's also the source of the problem in the heart. Jesus came to deal with the source problem in the heart of men. Because changing the source will produce change in behavior, eventually. <laughs> Verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Christians struggle with it. They're like, oh, that's not true. <laughs> and then they add words. Translators add words. They don't commit sin habitually. That's not a whole lot better. <laughs> He's talking about source. We do not commit sin from our spirit. We can't because Jesus lives in there. <laughs> We're one with him. Our spirit man never sins. That way God doesn't have to hold anything we do wrong against us. This is good news. But he's talking about source, not about behavior. For his seed remaineth in him. Whose seed? God's seed. The Lord Jesus Christ remains in us all of the time. Therefore, we cannot sin because we are born of God. Can we be stupid and listen to our flesh head? Yes, we can. Is it a good idea? No, it's not. <laughs> but we cannot sin because our nature has been changed. So, as we begin in chapter 4, <laughs> James continues his theme of asking his reader to discern the source that they're pulling from, or in this case, praying from. I have it for you in the American Standard, beginning with verse 1. And this is very King Jamesy, so <laughs> bear with me. <laughs> whence, or wherefrom, come wars, and whence, or wherefrom, come fightings among all y'all. <laughs> the you in this passage of scripture is always plural. He's not talking to us. He's talking to a group of Jews. <laughs> so he's talking to a whole bunch of people at one time. 
And I said, well, we don't really get that. We start taking it real personally when we see the word you. He's not talking to us. <laughs> he says, where do these wars and fightings come from among all y'all? <laughs> come they not hence even from all y'all's pleasures that war against all y'all's members? Don't they actually come from your flesh heads <laughs> that tell you <laughs> that getting what you want will satisfy you and make you happy? <laughs> the word here for pleasures is the Greek word hedone. And according to the Strong's Concordance, it means to please. And I added the word yourself <laughs> because it is implied. <laughs> it means to please yourself. Sensual delight, um, by implication, it can refer to the simply the desire that you have or the lust or the pleasure. Hedone is where we get the word hedonism. Hedonism is a philosophy which, in part, believes that to please yourself, either physically or emotionally, is the highest and best benefit of life. And therefore, it should be sought after continually, even at the cost of others and regardless of consequences. So if you meet someone who says, I'm a hedonist, run. Because <laughs> they will chew you up and spit you out just to make themselves happy. <laughs> So this hedonism means to live a life completely out of the flesh head, or for an unbeliever, completely out of their carnal nature. They can't do, and they won't want to do otherwise. And of course, living like that will definitely cause fightings and wars. <laughs> fightings and wars are the result of trying to get something that someone else doesn't want you to have. One implication that we can see is that our flesh head wants something it shouldn't have, and we know it. <laughs> our true source of life, our new creation married to Jesus spirit man, tries to convince our flesh head of what is actually good for us. We can end up fighting with our very own flesh head. <laughs> Originally, I was going to say and we end up fighting with ourselves, but that's not true. We need to know that. <laughs> we don't fight with ourselves. We fight with our bad programming. Our programming is very powerful. <laughs> when we have a disagreement between what my flesh head says and what my spirit man says, I have to realize I can take authority over my brain and tell it to shut up. It's very much like when people go on a diet. When people go on a diet, they have to work really hard at losing weight. And as soon as they're done losing weight, their brain kicks in and says, you've starved me. Now I'm going to make you hungry all the time so you've gained back all the weight. <laughs> Thanks, brain. <laughs> Flesh head. <laughs> we need to always remember our true identity and the power and authority that we have, that we live from who we really are and not from our flesh head. One of my favorite arguments for this concept is that the Apostle Paul never tells a believer to renew themselves. Make yourself new. Ah, uh, how do I do that? <laughs> you can't. But what can we do? We can renew our mind. Paul never says there's something wrong with who and what we are. He says there's something wrong with what you think, what you believe. But our who is perfect. <laughs> a second implication can be in reference to the actual fighting and warring with others, in particular with the unbelieving Jews. In the 40 years between the cross and the destruction of Jerusalem, the unbelieving Jews were constantly at war, literally, with each other as well as with Rome. And murder was definitely on the menu as a means of getting what they wanted which was control. Everyone <coughs> was living out of their flesh head, or their flesh head nature. <laughs> and they were striving for power over their perceived enemies. And Israel purposely and continuously picked a fight with Rome. It was very much like David picking a fight with Goliath. <laughs> Except this David no longer had a covenant partner. David 
only one over his Goliath because he had God as his covenant partner. What Israel did during those 40 years, she did in her own strength, in her own stupid wisdom. <laughs> and what came upon unbelieving Israel and all of Jerusalem was that her own hand brought forth her destruction. God really didn't have to do anything. He just gave her her way. She reaped what she had sowed. For the most part, Rome didn't even want to fight with the Jews. They just wanted the Jews to behave themselves. But the unbelieving Jews continuously refused to have peace. And then in her own strength, she tried to overcome her Goliath, which was the Roman Empire. It was utterly ridiculous. <laughs> it would be like me trying to overcome China. <laughs> it's utterly ridiculous. When unbelieving Israel rejected her Messiah, God let her have her own way. Have you noticed that? God will always let you have your own way. You want to live according to your flesh? Ed? Okay. <laughs> You're not going to like the fruit, but I'll let you. <laughs> if Israel wanted to poke Goliath with a stick, then God would let her poke Goliath with a stick. But she would have to then receive whatever that particular Goliath could dish out which just happened to be complete destruction. So we can look at verse 1 as containing the truth for us as believing individuals who need to recognize the source, the source of our fighting, the source of our quarrels. And the words for fighting and quarrels, some of the translations put it that way, they can sound very minor. Now, the source is the same. Fleshhead is always the reason for fighting and quarreling. <laughs> Whether we're talking about spouses or we're talking about countries, <laughs> it comes from somebody not getting their way. <laughs> but these particular words indicate literal battlefield experience, not just disagreements. So what we can see in verse 1 can pertain to us, but it's really aimed at a much larger Jewish unbelieving audience who was actually killing <laughs> and destroying everybody in their path. I'll start with verse 1. Where comes the wars? And these are literal wars. Whence come fightings among all y'all? <laughs> come they not hence even of your pleasures that war in your members? And then he says, all y'all lust and you have not. All y'all kill and covet. We do? <laughs> no, we don't. <laughs> and cannot obtain. Y'all fight and war. Y'all have not because y'all ask not. And y'all ask and receive not because y'all ask amiss. That y'all may spend it on all y'all's pleasures. <laughs> all y'all are adulteresses. <laughs> what? <laughs> know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever there would be a friend of the world maketh himself an enemy of God. Now, remember the shoe, whether or not the shoe fits? <laughs> Can we look at these scriptures and ask ourselves, does any of these shoes fit? Am I lusting? Am I killing? Am I coveting? Hmm. We may have to admit that there might be bits and pieces that might apply to us from time to time, but mostly it all refers to unbelieving Israel of that day. They were literally slaughtering people, both their fellow Jews as well as the Gentiles, in an effort to try to gain power and control for themselves. And that's because they were determined to have a military messiah who would lead them in overturning the government. Moses said, there'll come one just like me, a miraculous deliverance. We're going to overthrow Egypt. <laughs> And they're like, this is what we're going to have. They wouldn't see what God wanted to actually do. So they were determined on making it happen. <laughs> Never a good idea. <laughs> so they tried to make their understanding of the Old Testament promises come to pass through their own strength and their own wisdom, which, of course, didn't work. Unbelieving Israel at that time in history was still behaving as an unfaithful wife. What do you call an unfaithful wife? An adulterer. <laughs> and it's also possible that some of the new Jewish believers were still behaving badly too. 
It was a process for the Jews. Jews didn't stop being Jewish. <laughs> they didn't suddenly change their mind about everything and think like a Gentile. They have been promised a military Messiah. Well, maybe there is another one coming. This is one of the ways the Jews to this day answer some of these questions. Well, Jesus was the Gentile Messiah. But we have a military Messiah that's going to come and rescue us. Now, it doesn't bear out in Scripture, but you can see where they can look at certain prophecies and go, no, this has to happen this way. So they can, in their own mind, just keep rejecting Jesus because he was just for Gentiles. They were trying to make the promises come to pass in their own strength. Now, Israel's entire history is strewn <laughs> with stories of her unfaithfulness to her heavenly covenant husband. She was always running off and worshiping demonic entities in an effort to get from them what God said he would gladly supply if they would simply stay inside the terms of the covenant. But for the most part, Israel repeatedly tried to meet her own needs by turning to other lovers. In the Old Testament story of Hosea and Gomer, God illustrates through Hosea his very own love for his unfaithful bride, Israel, who just happens to be acting like Gomer the harlot, <laughs> running after other lovers to get what she wants. And we can see this in Hosea 2, verse 5. Hosea is talking, and he's describing his wife, <laughs> who is a type of Israel. And he says this, because their mother, Gomer slash Israel, was unfaithful. She who conceived them, that would be the um, children of Israel, she who conceived them acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, the ones who give me my bread and my water and my wool and my flax and oil and my drink, all alcohol. Both Gomer and Israel sought to meet their own needs and attain their own desires through their own means. For Gomer, that meant playing the harlot. And for Israel, that meant going after other gods, which is idolatry, which, spiritually speaking, is adultery. We can also see Israel's unfaithfulness in Jeremiah. In chapter 2, God shares his complaint <laughs> against Israel with Jeremiah the prophet. And in beginning in verse 11, God says this, Has a nation changed its gods? even though they are no gods? My people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be appalled, O heavens. This is kind of funny because what they were worshiping, sun, moon, and stars. <laughs> be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. And then he says something very interesting. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? And the answer is supposed to be yes. The concept is Israel is a son and Israel is a servant, a bondservant. Who takes care of the bondservant? The master. Why then has he become prey? In other words, why is he going somewhere else when I said, I will take care of everything? <laughs> what does it mean that they were God's servant, God's son, God's homeborn servant? That means the part of the family. It's just one of the pictures to help them know and understand who they were to God. God sees them as his children. He sees them as his people. He sees them as his bride. He sees them as his responsibility, just like the master for a bondservant. But they didn't want to live under God's authority. Being this slave slash homeborn servant meant that God was obligated to take care of them and to supply them with everything they need for life and godliness. Same promise. <laughs> but they simply refused to be faithful. They would rather make themselves an enemy of God and try to provide themselves with the sinful life that their sinful hearts desired. They didn't want to stay faithful. They didn't want what God was offering. So, 
instead of coming to the fountain of living waters, the God who is himself life and life more abundant, they provided themselves with cisterns, underground reservoirs that could hold rainwater, which was a complete work of self-effort. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but the cisterns leaked. Yep. <laughs> and the water dried up. Yep. We can do nothing <laughs> without him. <laughs> and then even though they found that they failed, they still refused to return to the God who truly loved them. So I believe James mostly has in mind the unbelieving Jews when he calls some of his readers adulteresses. And actually he says all y'all. <laughs> and since they were all Jews, he could say all y'all. Because at one time or another, they were. In fact, the only other instance where this word is used in the New Testament is by Jesus, the word adulterer, adulteresses. And actually, in the oldest and best manuscripts, it only says adulteresses. Some translators didn't want the men to feel left out. <laughs> so they added the word adulterers. <laughs> but it's talking about Israel as God's bride. It's not talking about individuals. But Jesus, he's the only other one who uses this word. And it's always in reference to the unbelieving, unfaithful Jews. We can see this in Matthew 12, 39. But he, Jesus, answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah, someone raising from the dead. <laughs> so what does being an adulteress have to do with praying to miss? Now that we know it's not us, <laughs> good to know, can I still pray amiss, even though I'm not an adulterer? Well, the truth is, what James is talking about, being an adulteress means you always pray amiss. <laughs> you're not actually looking for God's will in your life, you're looking for your own will in your life. And that's if they even get around to praying at all. Let's look at the scriptures again. Where does the wars come from? Where does the fighting come from? Come they not even from your pleasures that war in your members. Praying amiss always comes from flesh head or the flesh headed heart. For believers, they always come from our flesh head, the programming in our brain that's completely self-centered. But for unbelievers, the fights and ongoing wars came from their true nature. They were the adulterers. Verse 2 again. They lust and have not. They kill and covet and cannot obtain. Just like the, them trying to make their own cisterns. Ye fight and war, ye have not because you ask not. Why were they not asking? Because they know the covenant. <laughs> so them not asking has to be because either they don't trust God, which they really had a hard time doing, or they already know God will not give them what they want, because they already know it's wrong. So instead, they just try to get what they want by themselves. They dig their own cisterns, even though they don't end up attaining what they're really looking for. And verse 3 again, it says, Ye ask, all y'all, ye ask. You finally get around to asking, but you don't receive because you ask amiss. Asking amiss means you want to spend it on your own selfish pleasures. Asking amiss is simply asking with a selfish motive. Anybody can do it. <laughs> okay, overall, he's talking about Israel. But can we learn from this and say, okay, do I ever pray amiss? I have an example for you. Years ago, Mark and I went to dinner one night, and Mark engaged the waitstaff, per usual. <laughs> and it turned out that this young man had just recently become a Christian. So Mark and he continued to have a conversation on and off throughout the evening while he continued to wait on us. At the end of the meal, this young man asked if we could pray for him. We said, sure. He says, I want you to ask God to make my boss go out with me so I can take her to bed. <laughs> and we're like, how long have you been a Christian? <laughs> he had no spiritual upbringing. He figures this is the way we live. I have Jesus now. 
should that change anything? <laughs> and we said, that would technically be praying amiss. Let us explain. <laughs> That's the funny thing about new believers is so often they really just don't know anything. And <laughs> And you really have to take, no, that's not God's best plan for you. Let us look at the word. <laughs> so we had to explain that God just doesn't do things like that. <laughs> and we also had to explain to him that God never makes anyone do anything. Now that's really important. Because a lot of believers try to tell God what to do with other people. <laughs> You need to make them do X. In fact, when we were first married, Mark and I were praying, and he started in with the God, make so-and-so do this. And I was like, God, I do not agree with him. <laughs> and he's like, what do you mean? You, you can't not agree with me in prayer. Yes, I can. <laughs> God doesn't go around making people do stuff. You can't pray that. Well, you can, but I won't agree with it. You can ask God to persuade. You can ask God to open their eyes. You can ask God to send in the wagons. You can ask God to interfere. There's a lot of things we can pray. But asking God to make other people do certain things is not one of them. <laughs> that is praying amiss. Years ago, when I was married to my first husband, who's already gone on to heaven, so I don't need to ask his permission to use the story. <laughs> I would constantly pray for God to save him. Always. He was a heathen. <laughs> and one day God asked me why I wanted him saved so badly that I was praying about it all the time. And as soon as he asked me, I knew. <laughs> he wanted me to see my true motive for praying for his salvation. Now, I didn't want him to go to hell. That was one of the benefits of him getting saved. But it wasn't really the reason I wanted him to be saved so badly. I really just wanted him to stop making my life a living hell. That is praying amiss. <laughs> right kind of praying, wrong kind of motive. I was a novice at that time, too. <laughs> And I didn't understand that God's not going to make him get saved. <laughs> but what God did was, God simply showed me that what I wanted for him was good, but why I wanted it was completely selfish. And he said, you can just simply change where you're praying from. You can pray out of your flesh head because you want what you want, or you can lay down your life in love and say, whether my life ever changes or not, save him. Because you love him, and because you want him to know you. That's praying aright. <laughs> so God just simply encouraged me to pray aright. And thankfully, he eventually did get saved. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Ye adulteresses, know ye not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, would be a friend of the world maketh himself an enemy of God. Now, again, he's not talking to us. He's talking about unbelieving Israel. And we need to keep that in mind. <laughs> um, because what he's saying to unbelieving Israel, don't you realize still that you keep going to the world, friendship with the world, the world of darkness, the God of this world, <laughs> they were doing the same exact things again. You know, through the lying and cheating and coveting and killing. You got to think Pharisee here. You know, they were all about power and authority and position. They didn't want to lose anything they thought they already had, so much so that they were willing to crucify the very Son of God. They refused to see. And God won't make us if we don't want to. God cannot help them as long as they are hostile and hateful towards him. And that's what the word enmity means. Hateful. <laughs> Can you see he's not talking to us? <laughs> hateful and hostile towards God. No one can be hateful and hostile toward God and simultaneously have faith in him. 
<laughs> it won't work. <laughs> and that's really the point. These adulteresses that he was addressing were acting just like Old Testament Israel. They were trying to get from another God, the God of this world, what their own selfish nature desired. These were not believers trusting in God as their father and the Lord Jesus Christ as their master and owner. These were simply unbelieving Jews of that period of time. So, can a Jesus-loving believer ask amiss? I think I've proven that's possible. <laughs> we can pray amiss, but that doesn't make us adulteresses who are out cavorting with Satan. It just means that we haven't discerned the source of our prayer. Selfishness comes from our flesh head, and it always works against us and our relationships. And sometimes we just don't realize where we're actually pulling from. Just like when God revealed to me my true motive for praying for my first husband's salvation. I hadn't even recognized the source of my prayer was selfishness. I wouldn't have known if God hadn't asked me that question. I did love my first husband, but he was harsh and difficult to live with. So I wanted God to save him and change him to make my life better. And him not going to hell was just a bonus. <laughs> I was praying amiss from my flesh head. But my father simply revealed which source I was drawing from. And then I simply chose to put his welfare and God's will above my own. The prayer itself didn't change, but the motive did. Now, the real reason some people ask about praying amiss is that they're afraid God has said no to their requests. Because the scripture does say in verse 3, all y'all ask and receive not. <laughs> because you ask amiss. And they're like, oh, am I praying amiss? That God's not answering my prayer? A lot of times they haven't manifested, the prayer hasn't manifested yet. The thing that they've asked for, they assume God's answer is no. And sometimes they just assume that God's answer is no, you're being selfish. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not the case at all. God has already said yes to everything we need for life and godliness. He's already granted everything. As far as he's concerned, you can pull it out of the cupboard any day you want it. <laughs> but it's granted through the correct knowledge of God and his precious promises, both of which activate the faith we already have. God wants us to have whatever we need. But he doesn't go around waging magic wands over us or anybody else. <laughs> we have to believe we receive when we pray. And we can actually only do that if we know for certain what God's will is, both in general and specifically for us. In my last message, I told you about three Christian ladies who all had breast cancer. All three ladies went to God for healing, and all three ladies eventually manifested their healing. But how each one of them walked out their faith was very different from one another. It is always God's will for us to be well. That is God's general will for all of his children. Always. It is his will for us to be well. Period. But how we get there, his specific will on how we apprehend that can be very different from each individual. Just to remind you, one lady stood on the word. That's all she did. She believed, but she got a word from God. And when her faith began to waver, she got another word from God. And when her faith began to waver, she got another word from God. And she manifested. The second lady did what God told her to do. She had surgery. The third lady did what God told her to do. She changed her diet. God has a myriad of ways to get whatever we're asking for to us. There's a general will. Everybody should be well. God says so. But if we're not, God has a specific will <laughs> on how we apprehend it. <laughs> but it comes from knowing God's will. Another question that often comes up when trying to understand pranimus is, what about our wants? <laughs> is God only interested in our needs being met? Is it okay to ask God for things we don't necessarily need? but want? And the answer is, absolutely! <laughs> but people are afraid if they ask for something for themselves, it's being selfish, and then the answer is automatically no. Not true. Not true at all. 
everything for life and godliness has been granted. But again, God doesn't just wave magic wands and make stuff appear out of nowhere. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. <laughs> as long as we are asking for what is within God's specific will for us, we can truly believe and receive when we pray. When we pray in accordance with God's will for us, we can have faith. <laughs> and God is always in favor of us having the desires of our heart as long as they're the same ones that he has. <laughs> with these truths in mind, I want to share with you something God recently did for me. Now, most of you have already heard this story, but you're going to hear it again. For quite a long time ago now, maybe about a year, when I would clean up the kitchen after dinner, I would often find myself thinking, I would really like to have a nice Dutch oven. <laughs> For those who don't know, a Dutch oven is a large pot with a matching lid that can be used in the oven as well as on top of the stove. Anyway, I pursued department stores off and on looking for a really nice Dutch oven. But I didn't find anything that I thought, this is what I was looking for. <laughs> so I basically just kept wishing for a nice Dutch oven. Then one day, God set me up. He challenged me to use my faith. He challenged me to actually ask for a really nice Dutch oven. Don't just wish it. <laughs> ask for it, girl. Ask for it. <laughs> and then it's one of those things where you know the Holy Spirit is helping you pray. So I'm like, okay, well, that makes perfect sense. Why was I just wishing and looking on my own? Why don't I go to my father? Okay, father, since you brought it up. <laughs> yes, I would like a really nice Dutch oven. And, and what came out of me was, and I don't want to pay more than five bucks for it. Okay, it works for me, Lord. <laughs> and I just left it in his lap. A couple of weeks later, the Lord nudged me to stop at a secondhand store. And I thought, my Dutch oven in there. <laughs> As I walked through the door, I looked down an aisle, and there was one Dutch oven on the shelf, only one. So I very quickly went over there to inspect it <laughs> to see if it was my Dutch oven. <laughs> and it was a very sturdy Dutch oven. I was very impressed with this Dutch oven, and it was only $4.99. <laughs> it's got to be my Dutch oven. <laughs> so I scooped it up and took it home. What I like best about my new Dutch oven is just how nice it is. It's perfect. <laughs> it is a brand of cookware that I had never heard of before, which is why it was probably still there because no one else had ever heard of it either. It was called Salad Master. I looked it up online and it is a very high-end cookware. In fact, they won't even tell you how much it costs on their website. <laughs> My mom always says, if you have to ask how much it costs, you can't afford it. <laughs> I found another used Salad Master Dutch oven on eBay for almost $300. One pot. <laughs> when you ask God for very nice, he supplies very nice. <laughs> <laughs> now, I didn't need a really nice Dutch oven. It was just something I desired to have. And this Dutch oven is a thing of beauty. <laughs> and because I desired it, my Heavenly Father wanted to supply it. In fact, it was His idea. I love that it was His idea for me to ask Him and believe him for something I had been wishing for. When I discovered just how nice it really is, I thought of Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. I'm almost finished. Now unto him, our Father, that is able, willing, and desiring to do so. <laughs> able, willing, and desiring to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or even think according to the power that worketh in us, Christ himself. Unto him, God the Father, be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. 
what I hope you come away with this morning is more assurance in your true identity as sons and bondservants of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father and our Jesus have taken the responsibility to provide us with everything we need for life and godliness through the correct knowledge of God and his character and his very great and precious promises. Because God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ love us with an everlasting love, their greatest desire is to do us good continuously. Doing good is always their idea first. <laughs> they only ask that we believe we receive when we pray in accordance with God's general will for all his kids, which is life and life more abundant, and then also in accordance with his specific will for us individually. Often believers are waiting for God to wave the magic wand while he's waiting for us to cooperate with his specific plan for us. He knows how to help us walk by faith and manifest his goodness in our lives. I also hope that you come away with the knowledge that you don't have to be afraid that God is somehow refusing to supply your answers to prayer because you might have prayed amiss or selfishly or from your flesh head. <laughs> God cares about the desires of our heart. He wants us to receive the desires that agree with his. And yet what you'll find is that more and more, that's exactly where they're coming from, from his heart. If we're praying amiss or from our flesh head, God's not mad about that. He's not going to punish us for that. But neither will he help us sin or hurt ourselves or hurt others. When I think about praying amiss, I always think of alcoholics asking God for alcohol or drug addicts asking God for drugs. It happens. <laughs> God loves them too much to give them what they ask for because that would only help them destroy themselves. And God wants them to have life, true life the very life of God himself. And that's what our God wants, our Father wants for us too, his kind and quality of life. And that's what his grace has provided through the finished works of Jesus. As I said in the beginning of this message, knowing our true identity as sons and bondservants of God is critical for us to know how to pray aright. Amen? Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are so good, we can't even imagine how good you are <laughs> and be right. Father God, you say you can answer our prayers above and beyond all that we can even ask or imagine. We can't even outdream you. <laughs> we can't outwish you. <laughs> we can't outdo your goodness because it's so much more than we can even understand. Father God, I thank you that we're not adulterers or adulteresses. We're not unfaithful. We're not the Jews that James was talking to. We are your sons and your daughters. You, Father God, are our very great reward. You have already provided us with everything we need. And all you ask us to do is believe it. We thank you, Father, for your word and your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>